Hello, Rachel here with a brief, I guess a public service announcement and errata to explain something about the episode that you are about to hear. And if you listen to all of these episodes where we discuss the play scene by scene, you're going to hear this message multiple times. And I apologize for that to. This important information is that there is a method that my co-hosts and I discuss called Original Practice Shakespeare that we have since learned was not original practice to Shakespeare at all. There is zero evidence to suggest that Shakespeare's actors did not rehearse their plays. There is zero evidence to suggest that they always faced the audience at all times. In fact, we know that to be patently false. So I go into this in more depth in the episode of the podcast under that title about what is original practice and Shakespeare and early modern rehearsal and play production methods. <laughs>
Oh, mistress mine, where are you roaming? Uh, oh, stay and hear your true love's calling that can sing both high and low. Trip no further, pretty sweeting. Journeys end in lovers' meeting. Every wise man's son doth know. What is love? Tis not hereafter. Present mirth hath present laughter. What's to come is still unsure. In delay there lies no plenty. Then come kiss me, sweet and twenty. Use the stuff will not endure.
Come away, come away, death And sad cypress, let me be laid Fly away, fly away, breath I am slain by fair crew maid My shroud of white Stuck all with you Oh prepare it My part of death No one so true ooh, 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 Didn't share it Not a flower Not a flower sweet On my black coffin Let there be strong Not a friend Not a friend greet My poor corpse where my bones should be thrown A thousand thousand sighs to say yeah, yeah, Lay me over Sad true lover Never find my grave To weep there
I am gone, sir, and anon, sir, I'll be with you again. In a trice, like to the old vice, your need to sustain. Who with dagger of lath, in his rage and his wrath, cries, aha, to the devil. Like a mad lad, pare thy nails, dad. Adieu, good man, devil. I was a little tiny boy with a hey ho, the wind in the rain. A foolish thing was but a toy, for the rain it raineth every day. With a hey ho, wind and the rain, for the rain it raineth every day. When I came to man's estate With a hey-ho, the wind and the rain Against knaves and thieves Men shut their gates For the rain it raineth every day But when I came, alas, to wife With a hey-ho, the wind and the rain By swaggering could I never thrive, for the rain it raineth every day. With a hey-ho, wind and the rain, for the rain it raineth every day. When I came unto my beds, with a hey-ho, the wind and the rain, with toss pots still and drunken heads, for the rain it raineth every day. A great while ago, the world begun with a hey ho, the wind and the rain. But that's all one, our play is done, and we'll strive to please you. Every day with a hey ho, wind and the rain, for the rain it raineth every day. So I am here with Bridget Riley Beauchamp and John Bean, and we are discussing Act Four, Scene Two. And this, for me, is, is such a fascinating scene, almost from 
like an anthropological, cultural anthropological point of view. Uh, there's a lot going on in here, but I, I'm going to really quickly make a synopsis here. And in some ways, it's like the simplest scene that there is. Uh, they have taken Malvolio into a cell to be by himself to deal with his demonic possession, madness, uh, contagious uh, dementia, however you know you want to think about it from the time period. It's not clear really at this point how out of his normal mind Malvolio is, or is he just being kind of called on things that were always inappropriate? All of that stuff is open to interpretation. But uh, the the simple parts of the scene are that Malvolio is in this prison. Uh, Mariah gives Festi a costume so that he's dressed as the curate, Sir Topus, to go and bless Malvolio. Now, the reasons for this, I we will get into, I promise, because it's all pretty fun. Legion, dear listener. Pretty we fun. Will, we will go through uh, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, lordy. Um, so, uh, he he convinces Malvolio that he is Sir Topus and then does a whole little thing where he goes back and forth pretending that he's Topus and pretending that he's Festy. Um, he, he kind of uh, uh, grills Malvolio a little bit as Topus, asking him questions that seem kind of nonsensical to us on the surface and uh, then goes away Um leaving Malvolio to feel like he's been left alone so that when Festi comes back, then Malvolio begs him to bring him pen and paper so that he can write to Olivia and hopefully get out of where he is. Uh, and at the end of the scene, you have Malvolio thanking Festi, which uh, we all know Festi does not deserve here. <laughs> so, <laughs> that is the kind of bare bones hmm. of this scene. Um, I don't think it's spoiling too much to say that that letter does eventually make it to Olivia, and that's a big part of scene five. But we will start at the beginning. And I just, I have a staging question for the two of you. How did you stage this? How did you show Malvolio in the prison did you have like a box or was it uh that's symbolic a that's always the big question here yeah in this mm -hmm. scene, well and again since we're uh original practices there isn't a set so mm -hmm. it was uh if i'm recalling correctly i believe he was just sort of he played downstage and then uh mariah and festi played sort of upstage of him and I that see. was it. That was really sort of. So it. you just kind of you separated them, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. kind of geographically mm -hmm. on the stage. What about you, John? What what kind of things did you do? I've done it done it a couple of different ways, um, but I I'm a fan of of that motif. The uh, that that he's kind of in his cell, say you know specified by lighting, mm -hmm. single you know mm -hmm. good old num number three coming down center or whatever, <laughs> and then uh, 
you got a, you got a few uh, uh, in the periphery with them. Mm. It gives uh, for me. I tend to go into that kind of uh, like a, a lagoon of awesome in the middle of the stage, surrounded by levels for the uh, <laughs> for the players to jump on, especially in this scene because um, uh, this one gets pretty dramatic. With with uh, you know, this has got some of that that Bugs Bunny kind of drama when he's tricking someone or when the. <laughs> You know, when it got into those operatic moments in those old cartoons, you know, uh-huh. and, and, you know, kind of Festy starts incarnating, you know, with the devil and some of these things we're going to talk about. And the song and some of these, um, you know, the idea of his of Malvolio's fate and everything. Um, it gets a little dark and I love having him mm. being able to jump up and, and this new mm. outfit and this beard to sway and, you know, and kind of, <laughs> mm-hmm. if you, if Bugs mm-hmm. Bunny is always what yeah. comes to mind. Yeah. yeah, I can, because yeah. it is... <sighs> It is, if you do not hit this scene tonally dead on, if you get it wrong, you have just screwed the pooch for the rest of the play. (laughs) Like if this um, is, if this is. So watch yourself, people. (laughs) If this, because, you know, I mean, you have to come out of this not like you, Malvolio can't be too pathetic because then you hate everybody you know Festy and mariah and sir toby for what they're doing to him um but he also can't be too much of a buffoon or he hasn't learned anything and Mm -hmm. it's just like and then you've got you know while all of this nonsense is going on and you still have to propel the rest of the plot along where we're really getting into duels and romances and 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 protestations of love and so it's it's you really have to nail it and it's so hard it's, to it's write different than the rest yeah of the play. tonally it's completely different from yeah. the rest of the play mm-hmm. for, for me it's got that dark and when i say bugs bunny i mean that you know like all due respect that is, oh like, of course no of, they were oh, genius bugs bunny is, like, is very dark no, no yeah it's <laughs> it really academy is. award level if like you the look good, at mm-hmm. it, if you yeah. look at those cartoons without sound mm-hmm. then oh, yeah. this just the sheer savageness of them the mm. viciousness of them becomes really clear really quickly you're like oh my gosh mm. you know these characters are just vicious vicious beings mm. um <clears throat> so we have, i yeah his is is change into this uh this other character to start us to kind of launch us right mm-hmm. so immediately like we've we're we get that the benefit of certain right mm-hmm. this, right so that, right. that helps right. propel us mm-hmm. right and you start with the slapstick of getting him dressed like there's yeah. all sorts mm-hmm. of things you can do with that mm-hmm. absolutely yeah so i want to i want to make just kind of a quick little historical note about where malvolia would have been physically kept in these circumstances and uh if you're looking historically there's a, a couple of very likely possibilities one is that there may have been a, a holding cell in, if Olivia is in a castle, she might have had a small dungeon, a keep, whatever. Uh, typically, though, nobles did not keep enemies of the state in their home. That was not usually where they put them. And if someone was not necessarily like a murderer, if somebody was considered to be uh possessed in particular, there were these little tiny round buildings dotted all through the countryside where, because a lot of places did not have a local cop 
they would throw the drunk in there or the difficult person or the suspicious what we call those? stranger. What, what, what were those called? Cells. Cells, right? Yeah, cells. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, They're yeah, yeah. Cells. Okay. Yeah. And so they are these tiny little, actually very cute round buildings <laughs> that were everywhere where you could they, throw they somebody in. They did that in, in the Rylands with, with uh, uh, what's his, uh, God, the amazing Stevens. Well, no. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They did. They did it. I'm trying to picture that scene now because now I. They had him lowered, and he was in the yes. bottom of the stage or something. Mm. They did the kind of cell mm -hmm. thing, but that cell thing is very, very interesting too because it's. I think it's the other legitimate way to go. And um, I'm sorry, um, for, you know, I realized what my whole thing is. I can't hear myself. That's what I just. I'm coming off the radio, not hearing myself. Is oh. freaking me out. So, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But, <laughs> okay, taking it back for two seconds. Sorry. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, that cell um, and the amount of fun that you can get from uh, that cramped space, especially if you have a large mm -hmm. amount of oleo. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. Sorry, mm -hmm. but continue on. No, no, that's that's all really true, and I I feel like. Whether you picture as the director, as the actor, in your mind, whether you picture Malvolio in a big cavernous dark space or in a little tiny cramped space, I think informs your performance, informs what you're trying to say. And so while I don't think that the audience necessarily needs to know what that space is, I feel like it's important that the director and the actor and certainly Festy, that everybody agrees what kind of space Malvolio is in. And because you don't want to hide Malvolio, mm. Malvolio is the center of the well, scene. Puts, so you, you yeah. can't just put Malvolio in a no. box. <laughs> I, that's, why it was such, that's why it was such a big deal for, uh, um, and gosh, the guy that played Oscar Wilde, the tall Stephen guy. Fry. Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry. Jeez. Okay. Thank you. Oh, this Mr. is a fun game. Mr. Fry, you amazing genius. I'm so sorry, Mr. Fry. So, but yeah, but to only get this much of, you know, a Zoom window's mm -hmm. worth of hands and, and face. The thing was that he's such a force that it overcame that limitation. Yes. And yes. If anybody could, could yes. project emotion through a tiny little window like that it would be Stephen fry in, in sure. the balance of uh -huh. a major live performance so mm -hmm. i really like having topas have an opposing force until this kind of you know this opposing you know because uh, uh malvolio has some kind of uh sort of reciprocal horror at some of the things that uh Festi is saying where he's like mm -hmm. what did he just say that? So, you know what I mean? It's some of that, like, what is he talking about? And so to fully get some of that and some of the expression of him also um, playing with the darkness and and the, his horror and his location, which can mm -hmm. obviously infinitely expand if, um, you know, if it's not realistic, you know, in the middle mm -hmm. there. But um, mm -hmm. until Fessy begins to incarnate this sort of demonic energy towards the end of it to really sink home Malvolio's uh, uh, true fate and true sin at the end. Mm. I think he needs, I think that, that uh, Malvolio needs to be a little freed in the beginning to, to give Topas something to play with. Mm. <laughs> well, we're going to quibble on who was demonic here, but. Um... <laughs> well, no, I, I, yeah, no, I mean, his, his lesson for Malvolio, which, which yeah, is, I mean, he's, yeah. he's incarnating an energy there and talking about her thing as well we'll talk we'll talk about okay that we'll because, talk about that because okay, what right, he's right. incarnating is really pretty 
pretty fun in a sense and and it's the opposite of demonic energy no. um, guys don't listen to me everybody has i'm the pretty are, one you are the pretty one <laughs> well no lies told there so um <laughs> but you are also entitled to your opinion yes <laughs> I think I, you know, I don't, I think it would bore the listener for me to say at the beginning of every single one of these scenes. This is what this is. And this is, what this, this, is <laughs> this is only my opinion, but you know, I, I'm going to respect the listener enough to understand that they're entitled to all their opinions and all their choices. If they want to produce this, I cannot stress that uh, the choices are yours because you are taking the risks. Uh, it, if something doesn't go well, I'm not going to bail you out. <laughs> if your audience doesn't I respond to what... He's both the pretty one and the helpful one, friends. Yeah, yes. Yeah, good <laughs> Athletic as well. Yeah. <laughs> Hold on. I'm, I'm falling out of my chair here. Hold on. <laughs> Call John Bean and have them address your irate audience members. <laughs> Bring it. When you followed my advice for how to stage a show. <laughs> I am gone, sir, and anon, sir. Perfect. All right. Uh, with that very apropos quote, we will we will move forward. Okay. So at the very beginning, um, this first line of Mariah's uh, nice, uh, very straightforward. Uh, put on this gown and this beard. Make him believe thou art Sir Topas the curate. Do it quickly. I'll call Sir Toby the whilst. Um, do we pronounce that whilst? Whilst? Yeah. Whilst? Well, whilst? Well, I, I guess whilst. I here, this yeah. has really re-entered the mainstream, and I think it's the internet that's done it. Yeah. Whilst? My, my beloved wife just said whilst the nice. other day, and I and is not an internet person even, but it's I hear it percolating here and there whilst this is Oh, happening. that's adorable. And I'm just like, oh, you know, it's a Shakespearean. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. It's so great. <laughs> it's a well, good that word. Make, that makes up for the emergence of forecasted as a word. There you go. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> and uh a curate is a kind of a priest, and it, it's a Catholic priest, I believe. Uh-oh, I better not, yeah, I better not promise um, that. It, it's, they get very a fuzzy. helper priest. But, okay, um, well, that's and helpful. It's, it's and also, I hear it more these days in Anglican churches and oh, C&E. Oh, good to know. Um, where the curate is sort of like the step down from the rector. So um, is that somebody who would, I mean, does it have anything to do with cure, curate? Do, do you feel like there's any, there's no medicine? I mean, there may be way, way back in the day, but I but don't nothing that you think so. No, no. And, okay. you know, Catholic churches don't really have curates these days just because most parishes only have one priest. Got it. So this is easily something that could have been true in Protestant or Catholic churches. Yeah, it was definitely a C of E thing too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. good to know. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um I'm, I'm, and, I'm, I'm, I just marveled at the two of you with that. Oh. <laughs> Lovely. Go on. You and me, listeners. You and me, listeners, we're going for a run. That was lovely. Uh, <laughs> I've been thinking about this scene for easily 10 years. I'm sorry, listeners. <laughs> I'm sorry, Bridget. I'm sorry, John. It's, I'm so excited. It's your show, Rachel. So Go excited. for it. Do this thing. I'm doing it. <laughs> 
Okay. <laughs> so Festy says he'll put it on. Never, you know, never one to turn down a good outfit. He's a performer. Um, I will dissemble myself. <laughs> <in it. laughs> what? That's the truest thing I've ever heard said about an actor. (laughs) (laughs) I will dissemble myself. uh, He will never turn down a chance to put on an outfit. And I'll tell you what, if those outfits involve capes and wooden swords, just put them in a pile and get out of the way because they will trample you to get to them. And I I understand that. I have something. You're talking to a woman who'll sit in her house in her own crown just because. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Same truth (laughs) either. Well, and in this bit, this is the first bit that really gets you into that Bugs Bunny mood, right? Because Mm -hmm. guy that's coming up, and he's like, "Here, put this on, put this on." And he's like, "All right, Doc. Well, I'm going to put it on, but Mm -hmm. I don't think I should put it on because no one else is there." And there gets this kind of Mm -hmm. cadence that's this old Mm -hmm. kind of snappy thing. And there's a lot of gags in this in this passage. Mm -hmm. A lot of little gags. There certainly are. And one of the first things he says is, I will dissemble myself in it. And mm-hmm. I would, I were the first that ever dissembled in such a <laughs> gown. That's a little slam to priests that lie. Boom. Um, so we've already got some disrespect for the clergy going on here. Says, I am not tall enough to become the function well, nor lean enough to be thought a good student. Even then, students were hungry. But to be said, an honest man and a good housekeeper goes as fairly as to say a careful man and a great scholar. So basically he's saying, I'm, I know I'm not the most respectable person to wear this. I know I'm not a priest. I'm not even a student, but I'm as good at playing that as anybody else is. So I'm putting this gown on and, and I have earned it. And when we think about the incredible importance of what you were wearing in Elizabethan culture, in a sense, putting on a priest's robes is not a small social crime. Mm. And not and not his idea alone. He he is of all mm-hmm. of them the one that seems to respect it here. We mm. get a sense here that he That's understands true. the weight of it. And I think his arc in this topus thing going from in my opinion and i'm looking forward to caring why i'm wrong uh but it going towards this kind of lighthearted thing into a more serious mm-hmm. uh, dante-esque you know uh, uh fate thing for malvolio um it, it, it's the, the weight of that i think he understands by talking about that respect here mm-hmm. yeah that's a that's a nice point so uh toby shows up Never want to miss a good time. And uh, <laughs> pointing out how, how godless Toby is, says, Jove bless thee, Master mm. Parson. He doesn't say, God bless thee, Father bless thee, you know, Holy Spirit mm. bless thee. He says, Jove, uh, the Roman god. And then Festy <laughs> says, Bonus dies, yeah. bon- bonus dies, um, which were. <laughs> We're getting into dick jokes. Sorry, John. But we made it a whole half page. (laughs) Well, (laughs) only because I didn't go into all the other ones, though. (laughs) There were were a few in that first passage of Festies. Sir Toby, for as the old hermit of Prague that never saw pen and ink very wittily said to a niece of King Gorbaduck, that that is, is... 
So I being Master Parson am Master Parson for what is that but that and is but is. <laughs> and you thought that Bill Clinton said it first. He did not. Esty <laughs> said it first. Yeah, dude. What Good point, is, man. Oh, yeah, that, exactly. And if I could just add, add in here uh, that future directors and producers of this production, when you're casting your uh, fool here, you've got to get a taste of this scene in their reads ahead of time. You got to know what you're dealing with with Topus. You need the full, complete understanding of, of the transformation into this character. Now, you know, this is the fool's job. The fool, you know, so the fool's mm -hmm. talked about his trepidation with putting these robes on, and we're into this weird situation. Let's be real here. They've imprisoned a dude. <laughs> Like they really imprisoned it under uh, under false pretenses. Under false pretenses, and so now he's going to get his theater on, and he dives one hundred percent fully into the character. So, and mm. this is his skill, his art, the thing he was put on earth to do. And so, I always caution every everyone contemplating this role or this show to make sure that that your uh, Fessy has got Topus in him. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And or her. It, yes. And you know, we need to think about the practical reason why Festi would have done this. It's partly to cover his own ass. Mm. But there's more to it than that. It, it, <laughs> and that's the part that gets me so excited. So Toby, for once almost speechless <laughs> to him, Sir Topus. <laughs> <laughs> And Festi says, what ho I say, peace in this prison. And this really needs to be a tour de force, man, right here. When when Topas comes into this and starts dealing with, mm -hmm. with him, this really Don Quixote level of of, of, of character, you know, and, and artistry here on the part of the actor, in my opinion. Well, and it does help to know that when a curate or a priest would go to somebody's house, to basically say, hey, what's going on? I hope, you know, is everybody okay here? The kind of almost ritualized phrase was exactly this. What ho I say, peace in this dot, 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 peace in this home, peace in this hut, yeah, peace in this prison. So this was already, we're getting into a kind of ritualized exchange here. Mm. And... uh you know, to, Toby's impressed already. The knave counterfeits well, a good knave. So again, we get, as John saying, this these hints from Shakespeare that Festy is doing a good job here, that Festy is performing, is, is doing a good imitation of Sir Topas. And Malvolio, who calls there? And then... Uh, Festi opens strong, Sir Topus, the curate who comes to visit Malvolio, the lunatic. And so there, you know, Malvolio's heart must have sunk. And, you know, again, it is, in a sense, up to the Elizabethan audience to decide whether or not Malvolio is truly mad. And the question is not so much, did Malvolio become mad but was he mad already I, was, i'm curious about that though was I mean, he I, mad I, to to defy and go against his social standing which was considered a kind of lunacy a kind of madness to 
think that he could become Olivia's husband would have been considered definitely flirting with madness, almost to the same extent that Festy, as the fool wearing a priest's garb is, is a kind of madness. And they just, they had a different understanding of what madness was than we do. I mean, obviously, our understanding of brain science is is a trifle ahead of the Elizabethans, but they would have considered, especially for somebody who already had the status that Malvolio had, in other words, he's already at his God-given pinnacle of status, and to contemplate throwing that away or risking the displeasure of God. Yeah, but, but can't you accuse, you know, uh, certainly Sir Toby, who's of basically an equal status as a steward, um, if not more, uh, Mariah, certainly, and everyone else of, of equal sins, uh, and then going above and beyond that with the actual act of imprisoning, making him, I mean, just creating torments well, for his soul, that's, and you know that's... what I mean? Like, like actually, actual kind of a, you know, a torture, even if he's not, if he had been a more, you know, uh, well, uh, facile and, and vigorous individual, he might have realized mm. that he was being had. But <laughs> well, first of all, Toby and Aggie Cheek both get beat up pretty good. They they take their own licks later on. I'm saying in regards to Malvolio and, and, and the Elizabethan idea of whether or not mm -hmm. he's mad. I, for me, I feel that that his initial hubris mm -hmm. in dreaming of his connection with his superior um, which I think, though, isn't that a common dream? Isn't that something no. that, that... No, that, it, would, it, it would not Isn't have... that something that... Oh, not said. No, not said. Not said no. in court, not said to anyone we know. But isn't... Don't you think about the people you work with? Don't you... You know, I mean, not necessarily, like, in that way. But I'm just saying, aren't the people in your universe the ones that enter into your thoughts at times, you know? And it is, is a thought or a private moments are we to be judged for our private moments you know he didn't express this knowingly to anyone else he, he walked yeah. around strutting but not with anyone else uh, as far as but he, was he acted on it but he acted on it he acted I, on for it. me the sin of malvolio has always been his <laughs> twisting of olivia's words to the servants where he just twisted them so he was a little more powerful than he was that they were a little worse than they were, and he was a little more in the know and, and made them feel a little more horrible about it. That's Malvolio's sin for me. His hubris in imagining a world that the, the woman that he spends most of his time with likes him also, uh, is not, that's not hard for me to imagine. All you know right, what I mean? but, but, and then for him to go and try and remove her entire emotional support structure and kick them to the curb so that... I mean, doesn't that feel a little Dickensian, though? Like, I'm always going to kick you out, like, every day. We no, talk about that. Like, no, at the radio station, no. This would have been completely against... We're talking about the Elizabethans here. And we're talking about what's essentially a metaphor for Queen Elizabeth's court, where she had all these aging male courtiers, basically in the position of Malvolio, some of them stewards, like the master of the horse, uh, who she as far as we can tell, may well have been having a sexual relationship with. And it was considered inappropriate. And this is as much a condemnation of Queen Elizabeth as it is of her courtiers. 
But basically, it, it's a way of saying you knew <laughs> you knew the job was dangerous when you took it. it you know, you knew that this was your duty, this your sacred duty as the steward, as the master of the horse, as one of Elizabeth's courtiers, is to always see them as being above you, as ordained by God. You know, we have a very secular view of what a boss is. But back then, Olivia could have had any one of her Servants, courtiers, yeah. servants, yeah. turned out, put to death, and nobody would have batted a freaking eye. It, it happened all the time, particularly in the case of uh, when there was a male in charge, which was most of the time. Any female body within his grasp was his for the taking. I mean, th this is a completely different mindset. And not only would it have been questionable for you to object, especially if you weren't married, but it would have been against God for you to object. So with that kind of a background, I I see Malvolio's big sin here, as Olivia says at the very beginning, in the first scene with Olivia and Malvolio, oh, Malvolio, you are sick with self-love. Self-love, yeah. And that is the but he, sin he's here. not actively imprisoning anyone, although potentially does have the power, you know, I mean. Uh, All right. But you need to think about this like an Elizabethan. So the okay. price of not adhering to God's will is plague and famine and horrible. I just feel weather. like we're holding Malvolio to those standards, but not the rest of the cast. Well, it is Twelfth Night. All <laughs> that. All that aside, I, and by it is Twelfth Night, I, I mean that roles are supposed to be reversed yeah, here. Yeah. That that and that if, but be clear that if this wasn't Twelfth Night, that Malvolio wouldn't have lasted this long. It's only because everybody else is dicking around being silly that Toby didn't go straight to Olivia after the kitchen scene and say, "Look, your steward's getting out of hand here. He's." He's threatened to turn Festy and uh, and Mariah out in your name and claims that this is what you want. I mean, that's what should have happened after that scene. But Toby's a clown. Toby's not going to go to Olivia and say, hey, I know you're grieving and you're on the edge of madness yourself. Remember that Olivia, too, is in an incredibly weakened state. And so... Uh, all of this is happening at a time when she is particularly vulnerable and does not have, according to the Elizabethan mind, a true protector. The only protectors she has are Toby, good luck, and <laughs> theoretically Malvolio, who steward. is supposed to be protecting her from the thing that he wants to do to her. And we do get the sense, like, with his overstepping of his boundaries a bit, that there is potential for that to have been within the realm of his office, though. But I will say if I, if, if, that your argument is very compelling, and I think that it's um, it, it, it creates a chaos that I'm interested in, man. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I'm just getting started. I'm just getting, think... don't, don't get too hung up here because I oh, there, <laughs> there is so much fun stuff here. And um, a lot of it has to do with the fact that when I was in graduate school as a set design student, um, the production that I worked on was the Magic Flute. And mm. the Magic Flute, opera by Mozart, based on what we... Too many notes. Known now. <laughs> so many notes. Too many notes. <laughs> um, so long. And uh, uh, for those of you who have not seen that movie, run out and see it. And it's the name has escaped my mind. What is it? Um, Amadeus. 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 I played oh. Salieri on stage. Man. Oh, such a wonderful, band. wonderful Oh, my God. Movie. Not that at all historically good. accurate people, but so worth the wrong. Just lovely. Just, just a Edmund gorgeous. Edmund Abraham got the Oscar on that, Oh, so. fantastic. And the music, the of course. Phenomenal, phenomenal. Um, but uh, Magic Flute is an opera based on um, what are considered now secrets of Freemasons and other esoteric groups. And it's kind of a, an expose in a way, but almost a celebration. At the time that Mozart was composing the Magic Flute, Freemasonry was very, very hip. And all the best people had joined. And so it was almost kind of a part of pop culture. And so the fact that all these sort of secrets are laid bare in Magic Flute, it makes it a really interesting anthropological document for those of us interested in, um, you know, weird esoterica and religious beliefs and cults and so on from, from those time periods. And it was recognizing a scene in Magic Flute as being parallel to this scene that made me see this scene in a completely different light. Because this scene is practically word for word the same as the testing scene in Magic Flute when our heroes are waylaid by some priests in the middle of a wood and they go through an initiation rite or um, a testing is really more appropriate. And after they pass through this testing, they get to the other side, they get, you know, they get the girls, they get everything else after they have made it through and proved their worthiness. But there's a whole lot of similarities between that scene and this scene. And so for me, this scene is about testing Malvolio's spiritual metal. And it, I, I mean, it, you, it, anyway, I'm so excited. Okay. So. No, I'm so I so agree with you. I think though, I think it's a geometric perversion of that, that Shakespeare has taken that idea and is, I mean, uh, the substance of, of, of the, uh, whatever Euclidean riddles that he gives him uh, are, are insubstantial to the plot. Right. I mean, for them, I, yeah, there's some illusions or whatever, but um, it, it's the, for me, and I can't wait for you to tell me why I'm inaccurate on this. Because, <laughs> but, uh, no, and I'll say, but um, for me, ultimately, I think that we're going to find out, you know, what has always horrified me as a guy, especially nowadays, you know, you read news and that kind of thing. And you just find it like some random dude, really great dude or whatever, uh, got dragged off the street and was in the wrong country at the wrong moment, 
when the wrong upheaval was happening and got tortured to death just mm. to death right over there really gruesome really gruesome right there that happened just randomly he just happened to physically be in the wrong place at the wrong time and there's an element of chaos as this thing goes on that has always sparked that thought in me like as we as we you know Malvolio is incapable of understanding the even the nuance of his own actions in terms of the rest of the people of the court, let alone any kind of spiritual repercussions. You know, he 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 understands by rote some of the things Topus are telling is telling him, but he's not uh he's not gonna be going with him on some kind of like, you know, uh, like I said, Dante-esque like journey. It's it's you know, like well, well here's the deal it proves that he's a poser he's just a poser he he is not of the same quality as olivia he is he is not a noble and he's not even a good puritan he's a hypocrite and i'll explain why now let me just say that i i know that a lot of productions cut some of these lines because they don't make sense to modern audiences but they are the lines I wait for every time. So please put them in your production if I'm in the audience. That's just my little request. Um, okay. Volio's next line is, Sir Topus, Sir Topus, good Sir Topus, go to my lady. All right, red flags already. In the testing scene with Papageno and the hero, and I better look up that guy's name. So it's Tomino and Papageno. Okay. So Tomino and Papageno are going through their spiritual trials and the priests come in and they say, uh, you know, the first thing that you must promise not to do is talk about women or talk to any women. And the first thing that Malvolio does is say, go to my lady. All right. Already he's in trouble if he is in this process of being tried and tested by a spiritual authority, which in this case, unluckily for him, is Festi. And, uh, and Festi responds right away, Out hyperbolic fiend, how vexest thou this man? Talkest thou nothing but of ladies? That is almost word for word for magic flute for what the priests say. And again, I, I think it's Interesting to note that this character would have been played by Robert Armin, who was an apprentice to, I believe, his brother-in-law, who is a goldsmith. And in these esoteric <laughs> societies, which were in place long before what we think of the Freemasons, and yet there's a connection between possibly going all the way back to ancient Greece and Ephesus. We can't prove it. It was a, a secret cult. But a lot of this stuff really doesn't change all that much. And Robert Armin would have been part of one of those societies. It was kind of required if you were a goldsmith. Every single guild was part of a society. And then they were all kind of, in a sense, the goldsmiths were at the top of that. And if you wanted the most esoteric knowledge, if you wanted to become an alchemist of the highest caliber and somebody who could talk to angels, then you wanted to be a goldsmith. And so Robert Armin would have had in-depth knowledge 
of these particular sacred rites. Right away, Festi has what seems on the surface of it, if you don't understand about these secret societies and these initiation rituals and these testings, kind of an overblown response to, have you seen my lady? Out hyperbolic fiend, because he's already, he's in the groove of testing Malvolio. And Toby agrees with him. Toby would have been in those societies too. Well said. And then Malvolio, Sir Topas never was man thus wronged. Good Sir Topas, do not think I am mad. They have laid me here in hideous darkness. Again, there is a parallel line in Magic Flute where uh, Papageno complains about it being dark and the priests say, what are you talking about? There's plenty of light in here. All of these were the wrong responses, the wrong answers to the question. You were supposed to say, I don't care about ladies, and it's, it's bright as day in here because I have the brightness of my own intellect, of my own mind, to shine into these dark corners. But no, this man. This shit pisses only... me off, man. <laughs> no, no, seriously. I mean, just think about like how many people were like, you know, thrown in those cells and tortured and, you know what I mean? Just like all of those. Well, uh, it's happening now. So they didn't have the right mm -hmm. response, man. Mm -hmm. um, well, you, but see, this is not, but this is not like they would, this is not the typical thing that would have happened to what they would have called a lunatic in this situation. This is a layering as Shakespeare does all the time of yeah. different Completely rituals agree. and metaphors like Festi wouldn't have been anywhere around necessarily an actual mad person certainly if they were they would not have dressed up as a priest they would have sent an actual priest because only the priest could theoretically exercise the demon only I don't think anyone really thinks that Melville is mad they think he's a, a dick but, I, I, I mean, but we have quick. to go back. But, but John, dear, dear heart, <laughs> madness was not the same to Elizabethans yeah. that it is to us. And I, I think the the difficulty that you may be having is that you have a rather sophisticated understanding of brain chemistry <laughs> that the Elizabethans did not possess, and so. They truly believed that any strong emotional state was likely caused by an outside force. So even if you fell in love, that was a form of possession. So if, if even just falling in love is a form of madness, truly midsummer madness, then it is no stretch at all to think that somebody inappropriately in love with the person that they're trying to protect who is their superior, that that is a form of madness. And I, I might point out that even today, when people like C.K. Lewis or um, Bill Cosby did incredibly heinous things, a lot of times people go right to the explanation of these men were not in their right mind. So that definition of madness, of lunacy, comes down to us to this day almost like a scapegoat. Like 
people would rather say, oh, that person is is insane rather than, oh, that person is just incredibly inappropriate and flexing their power in inappropriate ways. Like it is the go-to excuse. So I think that comes from an old, old belief that uh, people just lose it sometimes. And anytime somebody behaves in a way that is out of the overtly stated accepted norms, we say that that person is acting crazy. So in a sense, this play gets at the very heart of what is madness. What does it mean? We are never going to answer the question, is Malvolio actually mad or not? Because that's the, that's the whole crux of the play, and it's never answered. It's never, ever answered. And that's why this scene is so touchy. Do not think I am mad. They have laid me here in hideous darkness. So again, okay, we're back to this was a big no-no in these initiation rites. You're not supposed to talk about how you're in the dark because you are filled with God's light. Um, and so then Festi responds in a way which, again, seems over the top if you don't understand the, that context. Fie thou dishonest Satan. I call thee by the most modest terms, for I am one of those gentle ones that will use the devil himself with courtesy. Sayest thou that house is dark? He's like, did you mean to say that? Are, are you really incriminating yourself to this degree? Did you really mean to do that? And then Malvolio says, as hell, Sir Topas. Whoops. Well, how would he know? If he's not a demon, how would he know how dark hell is so he has condemned himself again what festi is proving here is that malvolio is not qualified to even imagine himself with olivia certainly not to the point where see even Who getting the fuck is festi to decide that festi i mean serious in all seriousness like i mean i i a man's mind is just I'll get to that. I'll get to that. <laughs> it's coming. But Festi, in this case, is the high priest. He is wearing the priest's robes. He is behaving as fair a enough. Priest. Right. Yep. Uh it's it's in the text. <laughs> hmm. Um I, I, I love that, you know, when taxed, asked what he thinks about the soul. Asked if he's around darkness. Malvolio resorts to reverts to to physical truth. These are the things I'm experiencing, and hope. I hope for this. Well, soul. he's I hope not, for this. You know, I mean, I, I. He's not. He is not in the upper classes. He is not of Olivia's quality. You have to understand that to the Elizabethan, God put you where you were, so Olivia is spiritually superior to Malvolio. And for Malvolio to think that he can bed her, for Malvolio to even, in a moment of her weakness, take advantage of that. We know she's mad right now. We know she is not in her right mind. Because she's already said she's not going to get married for seven years. How crazy is that, right? So 
he is taking advantage of her, doing something that they all knew was wrong. And, you know, when you see this in the broader political picture of the time of thousands and thousands of Shakespeare's fellow country people aghast at the relationship between Elizabeth and her courtiers, which was inappropriate in very patriarchal terms. Like, you know, let's be clear here. I don't agree with any of that. <laughs> no, I, I don't think any of that is good or right or the way it should be. But to understand it is important to the scene. And it's important because these attitudes come through to our present day, that a woman in power is partially a danger because she will have male lovers or a husband who, it, to a patriarchal mind, will be telling her what to do, because that is the order that God decrees in their minds, is that a woman has a man tell her what to do. And so the Elizabethans were very concerned about all these male courtiers around Elizabeth. Now, we look at Elizabeth several Glenda Jacksons later and go, you know, Elizabeth. And Kate Blanchett and, uh, you know, every incredible actor who has played Elizabeth and made it really clear, certainly in our minds, that Elizabeth had her own mind and that yeah. she was not being unduly influenced by men just because they were men. In fact, perhaps the opposite. So to us, this is a given. But to the Elizabethans, hmm, not not so much, especially if they were particularly sexist and patriarchal, they would have not believed that Elizabeth was working completely on her own. So they were very concerned by these courtiers, and the courtiers did not like each other. There was a lot of backstabbing. There was all kinds of stuff going on, shenanigans, uh, when Elizabeth probably should have been worried more about looking after the poorer members of her society. There are a number of social reforms that she didn't put in until decades too late when thousands and thousands of people suffered at the, the further dissolution of the monasteries, at the gradual taking over of the land from being farmers to being sheep farmers and how that displaced hundreds of thousands of people over time. Like there were all kinds of things she should have been taking care of. So people had complaints about Elizabeth, as people do about their rulers. And the longer that a reign goes on, the more complaints people have. And at this point, she'd been in power for several decades, certainly all of Shakespeare's life. And so when somebody is not doing the things that you want, you want to blame somebody. Nobody wants to blame good Queen Bess because that's a hanging, but you can say shit about her counselors. And then this got to a point that felt so threatening that the court and various other authorities started putting out pamphlets saying, if you criticize the queen's advisors, you are criticizing the queen. And people went to prison for uh, doing this, Ben Johnson among them, for making it a little too clear and calling out by name specific courtiers that he felt was acting foolishly. So for Shakespeare, 
this is a way of giving voice to several huge uh, cultural insecurities at the time that Elizabeth was aging, that she was not in her right mind, that she had not taken a husband, was never going to take a husband, was never going to be able to produce an heir because she's surrounded by these old men or she's attracted perhaps to these other people who are completely unsuitable. And this is a chance for Shakespeare to put one of these guys in prison, perhaps one that he personally did not like, and say, look, you are not shit. You can't even recognize the most sacred rituals of our court. You, you call yourself a Puritan, but then you dress up in <clears throat> yellow stockings because you think you're going to get lucky with Olivia and take advantage of her at a weak moment. So um, he goes on to say, uh, Mavolio says he's not mad, he says this house is dark. Well, he's right. Um, and then Festi says, Madman, thou errest, I say there is no darkness but ignorance in which thou art more puzzled than the Egyptians in their fog. He is saying that you are as confused as ancient Egyptians about who is God. deep in discussion about yeah. about Malvolio mm. and how how evil is he really in the context of the play and in the context of the time period mm -hmm. in reading this book called Age and Love and it's about the Shakespearean era and Elizabeth's courtiers and how they were all fairly elderly, and how those tropes got brought into Shakespeare's work. And I I just got to the chapter on Twelfth Night, and holy smokes! <laughs> and I, I want to say to anybody who grew up in the UK and had a full English history education that I know a lot of this is obvious to you, but certainly in the United States and many other parts of the world, we didn't really get that. We got maybe a week on British history, if that. And pretty much everything that I know about the Tudors and Elizabeth in particular are because I was really fascinated by the subject. Now I'm looking at this stuff and going, oh my God goodness, this stuff is horrific. You know, Elizabeth was uh, molested by her stepfather. Uh, she had a long series of flirtations with all these different men who, I will admit, all ran together in my mind, partly because many of them had the same name. So, you know, you hardly blame me for being confused. But 
there's well over a dozen of them that she was keeping kind of on tender hooks to keep her position as being, you know, single and independent as long as she possibly could. And, you know, certainly we can't go into Elizabeth's mind and know exactly what she was thinking, because what the heck, we don't even know what we're thinking half the time. So um, <laughs> she said a lot of conflicting stuff. And I think some of that time that was calculated. And I think some of the time it was just that she had conflicting feelings like anybody else. But what occurred to me as I was reading about all these guys, I'm going, oh, there's Aggie Cheek. Oh, there's Malvolio. Oh, there's Toby. All these suitors. Oh, there's Arsino. Like these were all real people <laughs> that Shakespeare was mocking in a farce. And he was far from the only person that did this. He just did it very tactfully. So he didn't end up in prison. But in the same way that we might have a farce on television or Saturday Night Live mocking the president's cabinet, and I don't care which president it is, we, we, mm. we always love to do this. So uh, this was popular entertainment for the day. And as a result, I'm reading all this stuff about our courtiers and I'm going, damn it, I got to start this podcast all over. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Too late. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but um, I, I'm just like floored by this and somewhat humbled because I feel like this is something that should be obvious, and yet I don't see it very often in the literature about Twelfth Knot. And I suspect it's one of those things that if you were raised in the UK, and this was part of your childhood curriculum, it doesn't even bear mentioning. Like, it's obvious, right? Like, we all know who a comedian is pretending to be, you know, if somebody's pretending to be Biden or 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 whoever on television, we're not going to write long essays about, oh, look, this comedian is doing it because it's freaking obvious. So, but for those of us who didn't grow up with that, we're like, oh, really? Elizabeth is Olivia somehow represents Olivia? Oh, how shocking to us, you know? <laughs> and and yet I think that there's probably plenty of people who know all this stuff. So my apologies to all you many people who know that, but we're just ignorant yanks and we're doing our best here. So, um, <laughs> but I, I'm not going to go too in depth in that in terms of like which courtier, you know, was well, did Malvolio uh, make an appearance? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It, it, several times. And you know how like when you see a made for TV movie and it's based on a real story, but they take like two or three of the people and mush them together kind of into one character. There's a lot of that going on here. Mm -hmm. And part of that is the tropes which theater has relied on forever in that we have certain characters so people understand that 
most strongly now with Commedia dell'arte, where they understand that there is the, the archetypes. Thank you. The, the grumpy paternal figure, the the witty young woman, the the earnest the clown, lover, the the, exactly all the grumpy wife, the whatever. Uh, they were taking public figures and putting them into these roles. And then going, okay, now kiss or now fight, just like that we do as kids with dolls or, or puppets or whatever. Uh, and Shakespeare just did it so wittily. And he's really, really cutting it close here with some of these because there were playwrights that went to jail because they didn't change the name, they weren't uh, perhaps kind enough in their portrayal. I think one of the things that, that we still appreciate to this day is the depth of Shakespeare's characters. Oh, yeah. The man couldn't write a plot to save his life, but his characters are amazing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So even in their most unflattering portraits, like for Aggie Cheek, we feel a certain affection for him. Uh, and Malvolio too. We feel, we feel for his plight, and his situation. Whereas in a lot of the skits and plays and pamphlets that came out, it was just nasty, it, like the worst of the internet, mm. just kind of gone wild. So Shakespeare probably seemed pretty moderate and gentle in his caricatures of these really famous people. And I can really understand why the populace was concerned. We're in a situation now where we're watching the end of 2020 and we're watching a really strange parade of advisors mm. going through the White House. And so these people had the same concerns. They had concerns about an aging queen. They had concerns about the favorites that constantly paraded through. And plays like this and pamphlets and stuff gave them an outlet, a safe way to talk about it. Because if you said bad things about the queen or her favorite, like you could go to jail, you could be executed. Um, there were a couple people who put out some rather unflattering pamphlets, and uh, they both got their right hand cut off. So Elizabeth, about Elizabeth. yeah, about Elizabeth and oh, wow. her um, her favorites. Mm. It was a long pamphlet about how she shouldn't marry somebody, and uh, yeah, nobody wants to be told about who they shouldn't shouldn't marry. Least of all, all-powerful queen. So she saw these kinds of things as undermining her authority, and she wanted to discourage them, and I'm sure that it did. Uh, brutal, brutal human being. So then the, the other thing that I was noticing in terms of really trying to, to dig into her biography after 50 years... <laughs> Is that like my my feelings about Elizabeth herself 
have really changed. Like I no longer identify with that young woman. I now identify with her as a much older woman. And so my opinion about her decisions has changed quite a bit. (laughs) (laughs) For the better or for the worse? Both, both. You know, I mean, I marvel at how she she juggled all these other expectations people had of her. It is Mm -hmm. phenomenal. Like, I, I think it's amazing. And she clearly was brilliant, you know, spoke several languages and uh, you know, accomplished scholar in so many ways, and clearly much smarter, fortunately for her, than most of the people trying to control her. Um, all the same, fell in love with somebody in their 20s when she was like 53, 54. And certainly we see many male leaders do that. So it's not like I feel like it's it's morally wrong. I'm just like, I would not have the patience. <laughs> that would, you know, that would not be for me. But, you know, who knows if she was really in love with him or not, or if it was just yet another way to stall off pressure on the fact that she couldn't, you know, couldn't produce an heir. Although I, I just think so often about how exhausting it must have been to be her. Right. You know, to spend, you know, her, her childhood was a time of such turmoil, Mm -hmm. you know, where depending on her father's whim or his wife, she was favored or shunned. And then to manage to survive the upheaval of her brother's reign and her sister's reign and to, you know, take the, I mean, the, the odds were so against her that she would ever actually ascend the throne. And then to have to maneuver around all of these men who wanted to, who thought that she was going to be a puppet and who thought that they were going to be able to, you know, basically be the king without being the king and to spend her entire lifetime dealing with, like, there was never a moment where they're like, no, you know what? She's got this. No, there's never a break. You know, there's like, there's never a moment where they're like, oh, okay, you've been, you know, queen for 30 years. You've got it figured out. We'll stop trying to tell you what to do. And it just must, and, you know, she couldn't trust her. She couldn't trust the the women who undressed her because they were all reporting to the men in their families who were jockeying. Like, like there was no one this woman could trust in her entire life. And that must have just been so draining. Even if she truly believed she was chosen by God to rule England, it must, there must've been times where it was like, really? Mm -hmm. You know, never, never a moment's peace. And that's like, so I, I get to a lot of empathy for her just because, you know, she was the most powerful, one of the most powerful women in the world. And she didn't really have any true agency over herself. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry for that incredibly Philly O and over there. Um, <laughs> um, you know, she just didn't didn't get to make her own choices. Although more than most women did. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. But, but even I, that- I hear what you're saying. There's no peace. I mean, it's like, you know, if if you've got that much power. One would hope that you could have a little space for some peace. And it does help you understand why she frequently went off with Robert Dudley, who she Mm -hmm. was, by all accounts, madly in love with. Mm -hmm. 
And I've mentioned a few times about the discussion, did she have lovers? And it would have been very difficult, definitely, in her room to have a lover. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if she and Dudley were going off riding on their horses together every day out into the woods, were there maids of honor keeping mm. up with them like th this i i don't know it seems mm -hmm. unlikely uh, you know the way it's mm -hmm. described is that they would just go off mm -hmm. um and i have my suspicions mm -hmm. but i i also want to say that uh, she may have been asexual like she may not have she may truly not have desired actual sex she may have enjoyed romance quite a bit and she certainly did a lot of flirting and she was very explicit in terms of talking about sex and was an incredible uh, master or should I say mistress at leading men on to think that she wanted to have sex with them. But we really, we really. I would have just fallen know. right into the precipice of doom there. Well, many did. Many, many did. You know, she's playing the lute for people. She's singing to them. She's talking about how handsome they are. I mean, she knew exactly when she needed to say something she could tell, when somebody was getting discouraged and she would sing a song for them or write them a poem or give them some land or something else to keep them hoping and keep them because trying. her life depended on it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and she may have been so traumatized by her earlier life that she found sex too scary that's a possibility too uh, we certainly know there's lots of kind of sex that don't end up in pregnancy i'm sure she was smart enough to know what those were <laughs> It's really clear that marriage and having children were the real things that were dangerous for her. And we can see she was right. The minute that she gave up that, that one carrot that she had, she could have found herself in the tower and beheaded for trumped-up charges in, like, friggin' no time. So mm -hmm. um, she was clearly very smart about that. I don't think a man in her position would have been left alone either in terms of matrimony. Like people would have been pestering a man too. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. But there wasn't that insane belief in a built-in inferiority. Exactly. Yes, exactly. They, they clearly got away with more um, and they weren't constantly being questioned and second guessed about right. a lot of right. a lot of decisions, which, as we know, is so freaking exhausting. <laughs> Just on a on the day to day level that uh, that we have mm -hmm. to deal with it as you know as simple mm -hmm. commoners. But back to the play. Well, back, well, we're, we're getting <laughs> back there. We're getting back there. I think that one of the most interesting comments that I heard in one of these gazillion documentaries that I was watching was somebody who said that she had to be both queen and king. Mm -hmm. And so she had to present herself as a as a business leader, as a legislator, as a wartime leader, 
but she also had to represent those parts that the queen were supposed to take where she's an intercessor, she has a soft side, um, mm -hmm. she does good works and that sort of thing. And that that is a role that nobody had had to do before or since. And yeah. so when looking at Olivia and how she is taking that role that Elizabeth took, where she says, I'm not getting married. I'm not even going to talk to a man for seven years. Don't ask me. Just leave me alone. Leave me out of this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She was in that same situation where she was taking on both the masculine and feminine roles of leadership. And not in any hurry to provide an heir or, or anything like that. And that that in and of itself makes her relationship with the eunuch more interesting because eunuchs were considered, and certainly young men, attractive young men, possible love interest for a male of the ruling class. So it's almost like she's kind of taking on that role where she's considering a, a eunuch while all these old men who would have been more appropriate for her are still vying for her attention. And I, I think that adds kind of another layer of, oh, Olivia's out of her mind kind of an idea mm. okay so that's all my <laughs> you can tell I, i've just i've been reading and watching all these documentaries um <laughs> and uh you know reading about these different courtiers and then going back to 12th night and reading these scenes and going oh 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 <laughs> I get it now. Like even the duels and everything else in there, this was all shit that happened during Elizabeth's reign. A lot of it would have been in the past because of how late Twelfth Night was written. So it's almost, in a sense, it's almost the stuff of myth. It's it's history, a lot of this, by the time that, that Shakespeare gets around to writing Twelfth Night. Here we have Malvolio and... Uh, Let's see, we stopped at line about 2060. Okay, all right, we've gone through how Folio says he's not mad, uh, the house is dark, and how that relates to these uh, initiation rituals that possibly go back to Ephesius in ancient Greek uh, and certainly have been brought forward today with the Freemasons. And uh, Festi calls him a madman at that point, and in which thou art more puzzled than the Egyptians in their fog, which refers to ancient Egyptian religion and magic, but also relates to Christian view of Islam at that point. They're talking about Muslims and the Ottoman Empire an empire which the English were extremely dependent upon because they needed that ally in order to counter the threat of the Catholics. So the English could, they were incredibly dependent on the Ottoman Empire, but the English being the English 
had to go, well, but actually we're really better than them because they, they're confused about God. Okay. Then Festi appears to change the subject and says, what is the opinion of Pythagoras concerning wild fowl? Now, this relates in part to another play that had been written a few years before where Pythagoras comes out and people are asked about Pythagoras. Pythagoras, ancient Greek, almost mythological mathematician, and we still use Pythagorean theorems today. Did Pythagoras really exist? Probably, but it was so long ago that it's it's kind of on a level of a lot of historic figures where we just, we don't have any proof. All we got are all these stories about them. But uh, according to the stories, Pythagoras had a cult and they were considered by the Elizabethans to be puritanical. And they were Puritans because number one, they were vegetarians. And number two, they only had sex with their spouses. Get the hell out of here. Yeah. Crazy talk, right? So they were called Puritans. And, you know, we know that, of course, there were what we think of as Puritans wearing all in black with a white collar and uh, very strict ideas. Um, exactly. Personal behavior, what was allowed and wasn't allowed. Considerably more strict, probably, than the, the Pythagoreans except where it comes to eating beans, which apparently was a big no-no for Pythagoras. Don't eat beans. But here, Festi asks, what is the opinion of Pythagoras concerning wild fowl? And in a sense, Festi is asking Malvolio, are you really a Puritan? And Malvolio, who says that the soul of our granddam might haply inhabit a bird because Pythagoreans believed in reincarnation. And one of the reasons that they were vegetarian is because if the soul migrates through different forms on its way to perfection, then by killing and eating an animal, then you could be perhaps killing an old friend or a future child or something. And Festi says, well, what do you think of this? And Malvolio kind of rationally says, I think nobly of the soul and no way approve his opinion. Well, there are no good answers for Malvolio here. <laughs> he has not passed the initiation because he, number one, is not sticking with those really ancient esoteric beliefs, but number two, he's not a Puritan. And so he is not being consistent in terms of his beliefs. And so then Festi says, fare thee well, remain thou still in darkness. Thou shalt hold the opinion of Pythagoras, ere I will allow of thy wits and fear to kill a woodcock lest thou disposes the soul of thy grandam. Fare thee well. Okay. <laughs> Poor Malvolio, who then cries out, Sir Topas, Sir Topas. Oh, and I found out fun things about Sir Topas, too. Uh, Sir Topas is a character in Chaucer. I, I was hard-pressed to find any connection between Chaucer's Sir Topas and Shakespeare's Sir Topas, but it should have been a tip-off to Malvolio that this was not a real priest. 
Uh, Sir Topas is known as kind of a very foolish hedonist, uh, very given to pleasure and poor decisions. And so if Sir Topas shows up at your darkest hour, you're, you're in big trouble. He's kind of a buffoon. So I thought that was interesting. And it, it relates to Topaz, and there's probably some connection there, knowing Shakespeare. There's probably several different layers there, <laughs> probably a whole graduate thesis just on Sir Topas alone. But we'll just keep moving right along. Uh, Toby says, my most exquisite Sir Topas. And Festy says, nay, I am for all waters, which basically means I, I'm whoever you want me to be. And then Mariah's best line in the play. Oh, yeah. Mariah's <laughs> got the greatest line in the whole play. Right there. All right, well, give it to us, John. I must have done this without that beard and gown. He sees the night. <laughs> Boys are stupid. Boys are stupid. <laughs> she forgot them. <laughs> <laughs> but also just i just love the the you know after all of this you know uh impassioned right. stuff from malvolio that we get this just theater it's a theater right know? it's a right like i made i made this you're gonna freaking wear it yeah <laughs> yeah right right i made this you're gonna freaking wear it and then you didn't even let him see you <laughs> Do I have to do everything? <laughs> so then Toby has a second thought. How about Bridget? How about if you give us Toby's line there? To him in thine own voice and bring me word how thou findst him. I would we were well rid of this knavery. If he may be conveniently delivered, I would he were, for I am now so far in offense with my niece that I cannot pursue with any safety this sport, the upshot. Come by and by to my chamber. Well, he took him long enough to get around to that, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Little moment of self-reflection for Toby. And it's kind of <laughs> shocking, isn't it? After Toby never goes, oops, I might get in trouble here until, right. until this moment. And so, yeah. And what is the cause for that, you know? So we've got, like, for, we've got him first saying, go find out how he is. Like, so there's some kind of suspicion there. And then, you know, kind of admitting that he he's he would be done with this. So those two things together, I mean, we've got the reason that he states, which is that he's he's in offense with his niece. Mm -hmm. It's getting risky, et cetera. But it speaks to the impassioned nature of Malvolio's pleas here, you know, I think a, a bit. Mm -hmm. you know, I'll, I'll, he's in this darkness and... I think just, you know, being around that energy, is, it can also have a little bit of effect. But I, I mean, not to the point where he, it, it doesn't stop him from, you know, come by and by to my chamber, which, I mean, for me, that's a Mariah thing. But I mean, he could give that to yeah. Festy. But uh, but I think it's also, to build on what you're saying, it's not funny anymore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, it's Like, it's not funny it's anymore. Sad. He it's doesn't want to deal man. with, with yeah. he doesn't want to deal with, with what he's created. Yeah. So you guys take care of it. Let me know how, let me know I'm what out. happens. I don't want to get caught. Yeah. I don't want to get caught. Dangerous. It's not fun. Yeah. And it's getting, and yeah. it's also just messed up, man, in my opinion. Like yeah. what they're doing. It's just, mm -hmm. it's just so rude. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But you know, he's also like, you know what? Oh, this doesn't have to be my problem. Yeah. Anymore. I'm out. I'm Toby. I don't care. You, you, 
One has the impression he probably never washed his own dishes either. It's like a, it's, oh, I've, I've made a mess. I'm leaving now. Yeah. You people clean mm -hmm. it up. And my poor wife. My poor wife. <laughs> that just makes me feel so bad. <laughs> Let me just say, for on, on behalf of wives everywhere, it's been a long fucking 2020. <laughs> it's been a long 2020. Oh my God, you're right. We've just been sitting here eating shit mm. on the plate mm. for an entire freaking year. Usually we're out of the house. Mm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh -huh. I, I, I start every morning with my children <laughs> saying, Bring down all of those dishes uh, before you have breakfast. Every morning. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, I just <laughs> want to say here and now I am thankful to my grown son and my husband for doing the dishes because Oh my god. <laughs> and I have the nerve there's a trash bag outside. Mm -hmm. She collects all this does all this work in the trash bag. And I have the nerve when I come home to be like how come a trash bag's got to be right there? And I said, <laughs> worst. I'm the that is horrible. Freaking Toby, man. Well, it's not too late to change. <laughs> don't know how good change. we've got it. Yeah. Don't you, deserve you know, that gal. You don't deserve that gal, Toby. That's what I've been saying all along. Thank you very much. <laughs> but I do think it's interesting that he asks Festy to reveal himself. And basically to take on any liability in the situation. Mm -hmm. And Festy is kind of the only one who can safely do this, mm -hmm. don't you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Because again, he, he's the fool. He's the fool. He, he gets to skirt that line. He's supposed to transgress in this way. Well, and there's mm -hmm. no, Mavilia mm -hmm. doesn't have to. Yeah, you know, the, uh, with Festy being, you know, being the fool, he's kind of outside that social hierarchy that Malvolio is exactly. so swept up in. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Festy shows up as himself, and uh, Robin was Elizabeth's pet name for Robert Dudley. So mm -hmm. take that as you will. He's singing, "Hey, Robin, jolly Robin, tell me how thy lady does." Uh, <laughs> Fool. <laughs> and then Festy says, My lady is unkind, pretty fool. Alas, why is she so? He's still singing. Fool. <laughs> fool, I say. <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden, Malvolio is interested in talking to Festy. <laughs> and, uh, I, good fool. Let's see. How about Bridget, you do Malvolio, and John, you do Festy, please. Okay. Where would you like us to start? Um, let's start with uh, I, Good Fool. I'm sorry. Who, who am I? I? You're, you're Malvolio. <laughs> Did I mess this up? Okay. And no, no, that person. was me. That was oh, me. Oh, you know what? Right. There's a great little gag here uh, right beforehand. I will live to be thankful. Good Fool. They don't deserve me in my head. Help me to a candle in the pen and ink. He, he's oh, wait, wait, wait. We skipped that. We skipped that. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, yes. Okay, if we take it from who calls? Hold on a sec. I want to talk about that candle and pen and ink. And okay. Paper. All right. So go ahead and talk about that bit there. Oh, just the, that the, you know, classic, you know, just the, uh, <gasps> master Malvolio, you know, just that classic, uh, that moment of, you know, it's one of those cheap park performance, freaking gold mines. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was like, uh, when we have 
The fool's false discovery of Malvolio. Ah, uh, groundlings. Because he's, we know he's faking it. Right. Mm-hmm. And he has mm-hmm. Malvolio exactly where he wants him, basically begging him for help. And the and making him beg more, like he's singing him, louder mm-hmm. so that, you know, that he's mm-hmm. kind of shouting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just as he always does walking past the dungeon, right? Every yeah. day, every day he walks <laughs> right. past that cell yep. singing to himself. Right. This is just a normal thing that Festy does. I wonder if there's anyone in there for me to torment today. So, um, but this request for uh, candle, pen, ink, and paper are the final things that you're supposed to request as someone applying to be an initiate into these secret societies. And you request those things and you sit down and you basically write your li- little manifesto about all about why you should be one of the chosen ones to be part of the society. And we all hate those kinds of essays, right? You have to hit exactly the right note of I'm awesome with I'm, and I'm so humble too. Uh, it's, It's not easy, but this was definitely part of that ritual. And for me, that really cemented combined with everything else that part of this is replaying that kind of esoteric ritual and mm. if you're a David Bowie fan, in his last album, Dark Star, he does a video where he does all these things where he goes through this whole initiation ritual. Boy, that and, was a rough, that was a rough one, wasn't it? That, that whole, oh, you know, I yeah, I couldn't. I mean, it was gorgeous, but man, uh, that was rough. Yeah, mm. that's the problem with incredible artists. Yeah. You know, they bring you along with them, and sometimes it's not always pleasant or comfortable journeys but if you're looking to see that ritual in modern pop culture that's one of the best places to see it not only does this conform with that ritual but then it sets things up later it's a very useful plot point loves himself a letter yes he does (laughs) all right so let's start from um we'll start from festi's master malvolio Master Malvolio. Aye, good fool. Alas, sir, how fell you beside your five wits? Fool, there was never man so notoriously abused. I am as well in my wits, fool, as thou art. But as well? Then you are mad indeed, if you be no better in your wits than a fool. They have propertied me. Keep me in darkness and ministers to me, asses, and do all they can to face me out of my wits. If that's what you say, the minister is here. Malvolio! Malvolio! Thy wits the heavens restore. Endeavor thyself to sleep and leave thy vain bibble-babble. Sir Topas! Maintain no words with him, good fellow. Who, I, sir? Not I, sir. God be with you, good Sir Topas. Mary, I may. I will, sir. I will. Fool, 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 I Boy, say. That's rough, that part there, huh? That little, you got to do that back and forth between yourself and Sir Topas. Yeah, yeah. that's fun. And okay. figure out yeah. whose line is whose, right? And start like to, you, you got to start doing uh-huh. the footsteps away coming up here. And back 
I love this stuff. This is when it gets all loony. Hold on to the costume so you can put the beard in front yeah, of your face. Perfect, yeah, perfect. Yeah. Good, good stuff. That goes on. And, good you know, Festy does prove he is indeed for all waters because yeah. he, he can be himself and Topus at the same time. And Malvolio has no mm-hmm. idea what's going on. And to be fair to Malvolio, I think any of us would be distressed and confused in those circumstances. Mm-hmm. But it also does, again, kind of puts forward that idea that the fool is way smarter than the steward. Like he is just run rings around him. And I, I love, I just love the words bibble babble. I mean, how can you? Yeah, man. <laughs> I, it's just fun to say and this goes on here as this continues you know it's got this all of this great comic stuff happening and he is so wrought right Malvolio's just mm-hmm. overcome with you know I mean usually in performance he's sweating in a mess and banging and screaming for his life or some version of that and it's so bizarre here the fool's actions like because we get the comedy we get the resolution I'm going to get the paper and pen and delight for you but then the fool's gotta screw it in a little more you know he's gotta stick it he's gotta Mm -hmm. stick it in there a little more and it gets this kind of this is why i say demonic energy you know that starts and it's that and i I, you know which we were talking about with the books money thing you know is is kind of there that Mm -hmm. high opera you know that take on it you know it, it really starts to get um like uh, there's some kind of spiritual repercussions for his previous actions happening here, you know, um, that this is. Well, there's a good reason for that. And <laughs> I'm just going to jump that. in and tell I you. sets him up, you knock him home. In the times when England was still Catholic, mystery plays were very popular. And it was the fool's job as vice to be sort of an MC for these mystery plays, these, uh, these, they were wagons that would go through the town and each wagon would have a different scene. And each of these wagons was provided by a particular guild. And depending on which guild it was, they might provide a particular scene. So if it was a particular gory scene, something involving a, a saint who was martyred, it might have been done by the butchers. Whereas if it was a scene with angels and everything else, then the cloth ears with all their cloth of gold and everything might have stepped forward and provided that wagon. But the big ending scene, the big finish was the Hellmouth. And the Hellmouth was this big giant mouth that was supposed to be the entry down to hell. And after the sinners had gone through all these various trials then the evil sinners would be dragged into hell through the hellmouth and munitions would be shot up smoke fire cannonballs and people had accidents like this was not <laughs> these, these were your neighbors suddenly discovering like an entire warehouse full of fireworks and there's no laws and they do whatever they want with them and then just shoot them all off But it was Vice's job to go in and pull the devil out of the hellmouth and show the crowd who Satan was. Here, Festy is singing 
And he says, yeah. right there, I'll be with you again in a trice like to the old vice. And so he is saying right here that he is showing the audience yep. the devil. He says, who with dagger of lath and his rage and his wrath cries a hot to the devil like a mad lad, pair thy nails, dad. That's another reference to the devil. The devil was supposed to have very long fingernails and he got called dad. A do good man devil. This all kind of adds to my conviction that Shakespeare is showing Malvolio as evil. He's already got Festy in a very direct way saying to the audience, here's your Satan right here. Here's your devil right here. And that cannot have been comforting to Malvolio in his cell <laughs> to hear that song. Um, probably wondering what Festy had in mind at that point. It's kind of up to you. Does Malvolio hear Festy singing or not? But do understand that Festy's song implies real bad times ahead for Malvolio. Yep. No, it's, it's, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. And it's interesting too with, with the staging of this thing, you know, because it's um, depending on yeah. how you have the, the cell and all of that, you know, and I mean, mm -hmm. Again, you know, I you you get a lot of loot and like uh, uh, you know string plunkety plunkety on this thing, but I can't stress enough, you know, producers <laughs> and directors out in the land that uh, if just try one time, you know, because you got that, you got that. We're you know we're at a pretty high energy point here in the song of this scene, right? You know, we've got like like Mavilio screaming, mm -hmm. da da da, Sertopis is kind of creating this cyclone around him, right? Da, 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 da. We get a little bit of a break. Toby comes in, he's like, God, this is messed up. I don't think I'm going to be able to do it. Let's just leave. Let's stop it. End it. But boom, we get a little comedy again, get this thing going, and then bam, through the roof with this freaking, this, this hell mouth. It, I think it's the perfect way to say it. I like having mm -hmm. him surrounded, and I like this song to come out operatic. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I really want to see, you know, mm -hmm. Malvolio alone. I want to see like a lot of big shadow, a lot of saturated color, uh, and the fool skipping mm -hmm. his silhouette style in this mad opus robe in the background, <laughs> like like flames, you know, of, of the, the devil, you know? I mean, it's, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. So and if you can get that with the loot, that's as a designer that sounds oh, super yeah, fun to me i mean i would i think it's, I would it's totally a power into it's, that. It's, this is one of the moments for me in this play you know we don't have once more into the breach you know we don't have uh you know we're not mm -hmm. uh, beheading anyone or anything so uh this this can be just dramatically that you just get that so that sense of of the things that are larger than mm. him damning him yeah mm -hmm. and if i had an unlimited budget to put this play on like i would love to get kind of surreal here and bring in all of those illusions that i was talking about to get kind of surreal here and esoteric with the imagery That'd be great. like I he's mean, pulling in carts know. and shit's crazy on him and he's like you know it's all mm -hmm. he's taunting him with with these images of hell i love that man if any of you have spent ever any time in a completely dark room and 
I did at one point, I, I don't know, I, as part of my interesting childhood, I had a friend who, whose mother was a primal scream therapist, and she had an isolation box. And as one does. So like you could you go the in there and it was. No, God, oh, right. no. I just oh, okay. said, who doesn't have right, Exactly. Who doesn't have one? Eh, Hollywood, the 70s. Yeah. What are you going to do? But you could go in there and there was there was ventilation and everything. Don't worry, people. It was totally safe. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, I, I never felt faint or lightheaded. But you go in there and it's completely silent and it's completely dark. And you start hallucinating within seconds. Mm. Your your brain is used to stimulation. It craves stimulation. And so if there isn't anything there, it will just start making shit up. And if you were not already kind of on the edge of rational before you got put into solitary confinement in a completely dark room, you probably were not that rational about half an hour in. Mm-hmm. maybe and i think it would be really interesting like i i almost want to do like a play or a movie or something that's just this right. scene mm. where we go into malvolio's head mm. and see what he's seeing really experience it from the inside because no matter how we stage it we're always on the outside of Malvolio's experience. Mm-hmm. We can never be completely inside it. And well, I think it's interesting the way they, they the arc for Malvolio goes, you know, he he is sort of the tragic hero, the tragic arc of this thing. It in, in, in a lot of ways, if you if you hit that crescendo in the end scene with him properly, um if you performers got the got the goods, uh, that thing is a standing O every time when that dude leaves the stage. I mean, that thing mm-hmm. is that breaks hearts. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And the reason it breaks hearts is because he's going mm-hmm. through this right now. And it, it's it's so important to for us to because I I, I want to not forgive Festy for this. You know what I mean? So it's so important that mm. he he does have this this other quality that you've been talking about, you know, and then he encapsulates all these things, and then he's able, I think, to 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 flit from one thing to the next, and to be, you know, uh, sage in concern for Olivia, comrade for the, mm. you know, the revelers, uh, the tavern people, you know, and Sir Toby, uh, and so seeing his powers at work here are are so important for me to forgive him because if he's just human person mm. doing this um it's so I, I really do like to take this thing off of the off of the uh, the natural page here you know um it, it's just mm. really hard to stomach i think what they do to him you know it's flawed it's horrible you know and mm. so if there is some kind of cosmic story happening that he's getting damned in you know or mm-hmm. or um if this lesson is important for us as the audience to get which i think it's kind of more where it's at personally then i can live with it then i can live with the story and then i can you know but boy at the end i i you're just i mean you're you're that's one of the great and it well we'll get to it we'll get to it right <laughs> we'll get to it and i i i think that it's a good thing that our sensibilities are such that we feel compassion for malvolio in this situation but again 
remember the time period where they're chopping off people's yeah, hands. No, it, it doesn't make this any any less crappy, though, in my opinion. I mean, it's just this is such a horror. He was just a bit of a. I mean, this is we we've already got into this a whole bunch, but he was he was just. I mean, but I just he, this is such a small. This is merciful. The way he's being treated is merciful. Comparatively, but he doesn't know that. Well, he thinks no, he knows. He, he thinks he's going to the asylum forever, man. He's or whatever, torture, all of that. And was given, so he thought, the keys to the kingdom. Like he got the the one thing mm-hmm. his heart's desire, you know, that one thing. And then, so he not only got this done to us, but he got bullshitted that he had the, the the greatest possible thing he could ever have in his life so he has that so it's, it's triple fall far to fall you know what i mean it's it's uh so it, it's just it's gross it's if even if he is someone whose whose arrogance and uh whose lack of sensitivity or intelligence um or humanity um uh, would have followed through on the threat to say kick mariah out or whatever in in the cold uh the level of plot and the level of of thought that had to go into what's happening here to him is just—it's just so oh, it's yucky to think about spending a character, you know, spending their time in that. You know, I adore that that you find <laughs> that so appalling, and yet having just spent the last whatever three days immersing myself in Elizabethan court politics and by extension European court politics and then you know uh, all the way through to the Ottomans this is a rock yeah no totally this is not like, yeah he's being a baby <laughs> this is and the and, and it's being a baby I just don't want to hate like Fessy the or intricacy hate I just don't you know I, I, li- know I like do, them. But I don't I'm... want to be mad at them you don't have to be because in a sense they are they are saving Malvolio from a worse fate. I'm just reading about all these men that had feelings for Elizabeth or claimed to have feelings or had aspirations about becoming king or whatever and permutations and the plots they would go through and then their terrible terrible end just to start like from the very beginning, and I'll, I'll keep this very short. I'm not going to go through everything, people. But I, just with the first guy, uh, Ambassador Seymour, who was her stepfather and who was uh, Catherine Parr's husband. Catherine Parr was the widow, the one who survived Henry VIII. He married Catherine Parr, started messing around with Elizabeth. She sent Elizabeth away to protect both Elizabeth and herself and everyone else. Then poor Catherine died in childbirth. Then he pursued Elizabeth, tried to marry her. She wouldn't say yes or no. She said the king, her brother at that point, would have to say yes. He broke into the king's chamber, brandishing a sword. For some reason that people aren't clear on, but it it, it could easily have been that he wanted to get the king's permission to marry the king's sister killed one of the king's dogs who started barking at him all right that's it what the (laughs) apparently there were a lot of dogs running around so you know at any point then the guards burst in 
found this guy with sword drawn and the dead dog and the the, the teenage king in his underclothes going, what are you doing in here? And he, he was executed. And that's what you get. That's what you get. And mm-hmm. so those kinds of things, like those people were no smarter than we are. <laughs> and <laughs> ambitious, uh, selfish, self-centered people mm. made poor choices on a regular basis. And if we think about what could have happened to somebody similar in Elizabeth's court, who, as in some productions, touched her person physically in the scene with the yellow garters, he probably would not have ended up with hands or possibly a head at the end of that whole scene. So when Olivia has Toby and Festy, when she says, take a care of him, she's hoping he's insane. Because if this is premeditated, then she may have to execute him. It's practically treason. I mean, that's possible, but I think, I, I mean, I think she's hoping for the best, right? I mean, we, we like her. No, we like we her, but, but. She's, she's an admirable person. Olivia, Olivia is an admirable person. And I think that, that that's why she would have said just as earlier when Festy says the madman looks after the drunkard and, you know, the fool looks after the madman, blah, 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 blah. She's genuinely hoping, I think that he's just just a little crazy and maybe he'll come out of it if he gets a little bit of care. I don't think that she wanted Festy to go and torment him as her topus. I don't think that was what she had in mind at all. Uh, but I can see now having read about all these court intrigues and you read through these things and go, why did they ever think that was going to work? That was like the dumbest (laughs) idea ever. But Bridget, as you were saying, how exhausting it must have been to constantly be second guessed. Imagine having all your crushes one after another have these dumbass ideas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That must have been a trifle discouraging for her. And to know that no one valued her just for her. Yeah. Like she could never be a hundred percent certain that these men who claimed to adore her really did. No, no. You know, like I just sorry. <laughs> just all of us. We're very sorry. Well, and she truly believed that she was a divinely inspired queen. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you put yourself in a difficult situation there where if you're insisting on people looking at you as a divinely inspired queen. Mm-hmm. And then they aspire to be part of that. You can hardly blame them, mm-hmm. but it must have been wearing, I'm sure. Yeah. And certainly her main her main love affair, Robert Dudley, she had known since she was a little girl. They had both spent time in the tower fearing for their lives, so they had that in common. There were a great many things that they had in common and enjoyed each other Mm -hmm. but listeners you either know that story or you don't and if you don't know the story Mm -hmm. you should look it up Mm -hmm. because um it's kind of a love story for the ages it doesn't end like a shakespearean comedy but (laughs) um i think in the end 
kind of everybody got the best they could out of the situation, even though they weren't together at the end. But they were together for a long time doing who knows what in the woods with their horses. <laughs> Not with their horses. Well, <laughs> they happen to be riding. There's the two of them. Right. Just the two Just of them two on of horses. Possibly the woods. Possibly the horse is somewhere nearby. The horses were not involved not in whatever was happening. Like a falconer. Between the two of them. Let's just for make that very my clear. Mind hadn't even gone there. So thank you for <laughs> I got you. All right. Um, do either of you want to say anything else about this scene? I am gone, sir, and an answer. <laughs> I'll be with you again. Keep going. Oh, no. Oh, I don't think we got the speakers for it. <laughs> Turn it up, man. All right. Next scene, act four, scene three. Sebastian makes an appearance, and he mm. and Olivia have a very brief but very significant scene here as exciting things happen so if you if you want if you want to get ready for that one next uh, go ahead and watch the blue lagoon that i recommend <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll be all ready for this scene. 